This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. This is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years. I started Self Work five and a half years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice because I wanted to address so much of what I knew out there was being said about therapy that just wasn't right. So I'm reaching out to one group who may already be very interested in therapy. Maybe you're in therapy and you're wanting to soak up more about psychological and emotional issues. Maybe you're working through trauma. To a second group of you who may just have been diagnosed with something or you're beginning to realize a problem that you're struggling with that you want some help with. But also to a third group of you. To those of you, again, who might think that reaching out for help is weak or that therapists somehow want to take control of your life, none of that is true. So even though self-work isn't therapy, I've been a therapist for now 30 years, and perhaps you can get just a hint of what going to therapy might be like by listening to self-work. I first found Amanda White on Instagram as she's the therapist behind a very popular mental health group called Therapy for Women there on Instagram. But then I was curious enough to want to learn more about her. And I learned that she had a book that came out early in 2022, Not Drinking Tonight, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love, where she calls herself a retired party girl turned therapist. <laughs> she became sober herself in her early 20s, but speaks candidly about how frightened she was to do so, that suddenly she'd be the one left out, the one that was weird or simply not fun. She encourages others to consider how any addiction you might have, but especially alcohol addiction, just might be creeping up on you. The pandemic has certainly caused many to find escape in moves, with both men and women drinking more than 14% of their normal, and women's drinking in some groups has increased by up to 41%. Those are huge numbers. Amanda, as a therapist, also has many years of treating those who are trying to decrease or stop their drinking completely, having founded the Therapy for Women Center in Philadelphia. Her work has been featured in dozens of publications, including the Washington Post, Forbes, Shape, Women's Health, and more. She wants you to not only figure out the true why, but more importantly, when and how to set boundaries around your choices around alcohol, maybe even how to be the one that's not drinking tonight. I really enjoyed talking to her, and I've read her book, and it provides some wonderful wisdom. But before we get to the interview... I want to introduce those of you who haven't been listening long or just have come on board to Athletic Greens, now AG1, and they have a bonus product with your subscription if you use the link for self-work, only for self-work listeners. Our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work. And I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family, 
I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com slash selfwork. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash selfwork to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get in to my interview with Amanda White. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you will too. Hello, Amanda. Hi. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you too. Thank you for having me. Sure, of course, of course. Well, I, I was very interested, Amanda, in you talk about yourself in the book, but you also mm-hmm. don't necessarily tell your story. So could you yeah. talk a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Amanda White. Um, people might know me on Instagram as therapy for women is my handle. I am sober. I've been sober for seven and a half years now, and I'm also a licensed therapist. And essentially, my story kind of looks like that I moved a lot growing up. I struggled with fitting in. And when I started drinking alcohol in high school, it just kind of felt like friends in a bottle. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it felt like this was the connection that I was looking for. Sure. It helped with my social anxiety. And my drinking was okay for a while. I drank probably similarly to people, you know, other people in college and and my friends and things like that. But um, I also struggled with an eating disorder and I started kind of being a little risky with not eating when I would drink. Um, I would, you know, skip meals. I also got addicted to Adderall in college because I really liked how it took away um, my appetite. Mm-hmm. And I got really depressed in college and um, alcohol was definitely part of that. And when I graduated college, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I finally, I, I've been in therapy kind of my whole life since I first told my parents that I was struggling with an eating disorder and they found that out. So probably since I was 15, mm-hmm. But I lied to almost every therapist. Or omitted. That. Just sort of yes. omitted it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, I omitted the truth. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really cared. Um, I was a big people pleaser. And I really cared more a lot of times about them liking me or thinking that I was making progress than actually you know, telling them what was going on. Mm-hmm. And finally, once I graduated college, I got a therapist who did share a bit of her story. She shared that she was in recovery and that, you know, gave me the space to start being totally truthful and being authentic in therapy. That's the kind of self-revelatory decision that some therapists are, you know, we try to make and say, well, is this a good time to to reveal not so hot? So yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And it, it really helped me. It made a difference for me because I had so much shame that I was finally able to kind of work through some of that. And um, 
essentially, I started realizing when I was in therapy and I loved therapy that I would like to be a therapist. Um, and I went back to school for that. But all the time I kept drinking and I never really, I knew my eating disorder was a problem. Um, I knew, you know, I, I was bulimic, so I binged and purged a lot. But I never thought my alcohol was a problem because, um, you know, I never went to jail. I never got a DUI. I never uh, went to rehab. I never went to the hospital or had my stomach pumped. It was mostly just that. And a lot, you know, I didn't drink every day, but sometimes when I, you know, I kind of say my drinking was like Russian roulette and something bad didn't happen every time I drank. But when I did have something bad happen, I was always drinking and the consequences were just something that I wasn't willing to deal with anymore Mm -hmm. because I love that point that you're saying, you know, that people go, Oh, well, all those facts didn't happen to me. But then when they look back and say, but that violent argument I had with my partner or the time that I missed an important meeting or something like that, yes, alcohol had been involved. And it's not till you sort of, when they start seeing there's behavioral, you know, it's more in your behavior and in some of the other ancillary things that have happened to you rather than you've gotten arrested for drunken disorderly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, I started to kind of put together, too, that, okay, maybe alcohol wasn't like, you know, impairing my functioning, but it was negatively impacting my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I kind of also, you know, to make it even more interesting, I was also an intern at a drug and alcohol rehab at the time (laughs) while I was struggling with this. And I thought it was very different than them. And thankfully, I kind of had a moment with my therapist of realizing, you know, what if I keep doing this and how am I going to be a therapist if this stuff happens? How am I supposed to build confidence and self-esteem when I'm doing this stuff? And when I don't have essentially, you know, we did a lot of values work and I would spend a lot of my time doing things that made me feel good about myself. And then I would get drunk and, you know, it was like my conscious self left the building and I couldn't make decisions that were, you know, in alignment with what I wanted. And I was terrified to stop drinking, but I was terrified to keep drinking. What terrified you about stopping? I was 24 when I stopped. So Mm -hmm. the idea to me was that how I, how was I going to have friends? How would I, Ever, like I thought it was like social suicide. I was like, I'm going to be boring. A big part of my identity was wrapped up in being fun and being spontaneous. And I was scared. I had no idea who I would be mm-hmm. if I stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, what I enjoyed about the book was that it was sort of this mixture of science and some of your own concepts that you've created to help people and with this addiction issue. And uh, also you, you did talk about a a good thing. I I loved the, uh, when I was reading the book, I kept thinking, is she going to talk about moderation? Is she going to talk about moderation? And then all of a sudden you started talking about moderation, (laughs) (laughs) which we're going to get to in a minute. But could you talk about some of the science? Like, I was fascinated to read about how, you know, we think if we come home and have a drink that actually we're quieting our body and quieting our mind when in actuality, that's not what happens. We're actually activating our metabolic system to come get this enemy alcohol out of our, out of our bloodstream. So can you talk about that a little bit? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I was shocked to learn about this too, until I started researching it because alcohol is kind of promoted as this de-stressor. We know it's a depressant, but what we forget about is our body wants to be in homeostasis at all times. So if you do something and like ingesting a depressant, your body actually produces hormones to re-bring yourself back to homeostasis. So your body will produce things like cortisol and other essentially anxiety, you know, adrenaline, anxiety producing hormones to bring you back into alignment. And the problem is, right, is then alcohol leaves your system, however long it takes, depending on how much you drink, but you're left with those hormones the next day. So it actually might make you temporarily kind of feel more calm, but the next day you're creating more anxiety for yourself, just metabolically in your brain. Hmm. That's very interesting. And, you know, I've always thought about, you talk about how alcohol helps you disconnect from your body. I, when I think thought about it through the years and have talked with people, I've thought about more that alcohol helped you uh, detach from your from your mind, from your thinking, yes. rather than from your body. So that was an interesting kind of take on it that I hadn't heard. Yeah, I think it's both. I think really it's, I mean, right, we know that essentially the front part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex goes offline when you're drinking. And that's why we don't make decisions. We can't um, think through our behavior as well and things like that. But a lot of, and I really kind of talk about too, how people who drink alcohol or have addiction, their life might look out of control, but it really is kind of um, a disorder where people love control and they like being able to control how they feel and being able to just totally tap out and disconnect. So even, right, you use alcohol to deal with stress or people will use it even to kind of, if they're not feeling great, like if they you know, um, are feeling nauseous or something, right? Like not being in control of feeling sick or having anything like that. People will use alcohol to just kind of numb and and deal with that. Yeah, I uh, am very interested in how perfectionism can be very destructive. And I talk about one of the traits of what I call perfectly hidden depression is that Mm. there could be secret addictions that they're not, you know, again, they're sort of omitting. And if they are in therapy, which often they're not, but they don't really see that, that it is a way of controlling. I know exactly how, you know, this ounce of vodka is going to make me feel, or this three ounces of vodka is going to make me feel so, or they think they do. So what about your rain concept? You have Mm -hmm. a a thing called rain, and I I would love for you to describe that to my self-work listeners. Yeah. So a rain is essentially kind of a mindfulness exercise um, that helps you kind of get in tune with what's going on and get present. Um, And rain, actually, I didn't create it. It was actually created by a meditation teacher, and I believe Tara Branch Branch may have created it. Um, But it's essentially an exercise that allows you to kind of reflect, notice, tap into what's going on. I think a lot of times we shy away from mindfulness because we think that it means we're sitting, we're meditating, we're being perfectly calm, where mindfulness is really just the, the process of noticing what's happening in the present moment and being curious instead of being judgmental and just noticing One of the things that you also really stress is that 
figuring out or challenging yourself, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, this is a problem. Um, what do you think gets in the way most of people recognizing whether they're they're sort of justifying that they drink? You know, so many people say, oh, you've got to reach your bottom and, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But do you think that has to happen or do you think that kind of sense of awareness, mindfulness, ability to look at yourself objectively? I mean, what if all that is the yeah. most important thing to you or, or could you name at least four or five of things that yeah. will jump over that hurdle? Absolutely. Or crawl over it. They yeah. may crawl under it, whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I don't love the concept of rock bottom. While I understand how it exists and it, it can be helpful for people, I think it can prevent people from seeking help early. Mm. You know, I think the biggest thing that essentially stops people from evaluating or thinking about changing their relationship with alcohol is the stigma in our society and the belief that Anyone who has a problem, like you, you should either, you're not an alcoholic and you should be able to drink as much as you want and you never have to worry about it. Or there are alcoholics, there are people who are born with this disease and they can never drink in a different way. So a lot of us don't want to be alcoholics, obviously. So it really stops us from questioning our relationship with it because often the first thing we'll think is, am I an alcoholic? Mm -hmm. The question people Google, right? (laughs) Late at night when they're concerned is, am I an alcoholic? Not is alcohol negatively impacting my life? And because we get so stuck on that label or phrase. And and it's also because Alcoholics Anonymous, which, you know, was a great program and still is, it helps millions of people. Did you uh, use AA? I did. I did. I'm not part of the program anymore, but I did use AA. And, you know, seven and a half years ago, there were a lot less groups and different ways to kind of talk about alcohol, but it's almost so intertwined with treatment and therapy too, you know, like I was in school to become a therapist, like I said, specifically an addiction therapist. And I was told the first step of helping someone with an alcohol or drug issue is they have to admit that they're an alcoholic or they're an addict. So treatment almost becomes about working through someone's denial or forcing them to admit this rather than listening to them and helping them understand how this behavior is negatively impacting their life. So I think that's one of the biggest things is just that people get so stuck on the label. And to me, it's not about, is it bad enough, right? To stop. It's like, is this good enough to continue? I think that's an excellent point. Can you repeat that? I think that's- Yeah, it's not about, is alcohol, is your alcohol problem bad enough to stop? It's, is this behavior good enough to keep doing? And is your life good enough? Is In what direction is it going? And do you, like you say, is this behavior how fulfilling? Leading, yeah, how is this behavior it? leading you to the life that you want? And would your life be better right. if you didn't drink or you drank less? Right. That's such a great point. It's looking at, instead of trying to fight that denial, as you say, is to then what could happen that would lead you in a more meaningful direction Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. I think that's wonderful. So can you describe decision fatigue? Yeah. Because you also talk a lot about that. And I thought that was a really succinct way of talking about some of that cycle of what keeps you drinking. 
Absolutely. So a lot of people, right, want to moderate, which I understand when I was questioning my relationship with alcohol, the idea of quitting was really, it felt really extreme. But the problem with moderation is that it requires constant decision-making, right? You think, when am I going to drink? How much am I going to drink? Who am I going to drink with? Where am I going to drink? When will I stop? There's so many decisions. And on top of it, when you drink alcohol, you're also impairing the decision-making part of your brain, which makes those decisions even harder. But the problem with doing so many decisions all the time is that you experience, we all experience this phenomenon called decision fatigue. And many of us in general experience this. It doesn't even need to be with alcohol. Um, You know, if you're in your work, if you make a lot of decisions, you might experience decision fatigue. If you're a parent and constantly making decisions, you can experience decision fatigue. And it's essentially just the idea of making decisions and having to think through the choices we're making. It takes energy and it can really exhaust us. And when you are moderating, you're essentially kind of relying on willpower to moderate. And willpower is a finite thing. We, we don't just have unlimited willpower. It takes energy to get ourselves to not do something and do something else. And there's a really fantastic quote um, from someone who kind of discovered the concept of decision fatigue. Uh, Roy Baumeister, I believe is his name. And he has this phenomenal quote that says, the best decision makers know when not to trust themselves. Yes, yes. How? In, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I just love that quote. Yeah. I have a friend who was a really heavy drinker and then went into a rehab program that was actually teaching moderation. It was, oh, not, wow. it was not an AA-based program. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking what he would say. And mm-hmm. I think he would say that maybe at the beginning it was, yeah. it was a lot of decision making but it morphed into a lifestyle that he found very motivating mm-hmm. and so and then I, after i met him and became friends with him i i read a book about moderation and the point they made which yeah. i thought was interesting again was that you have to want to know what it feels like to only have alcohol in your life every now and then yes and that's that's the kind of life you want to create for yourself that that is a it's not I still want the other life it's I have definitely moved into this is the life I prefer I totally agree with that and I think I think to your point of what your friend was saying I think if you created almost a rule around it right if you instead of the important thing is if you say like maybe I'll drink maybe I won't tonight it's going to probably be a yes yeah you come up with a plan of I only drink one drink once a week or something like that, that is going to be a lot easier on your brain. It will be much less decision fatigue. I think the problem is most people who want to moderate want to um, still be able to get drunk. <laughs> and it, like, oh, I see. And that is a really like you just can't. It's, uh-uh. I mean, once you hit that point, it's just extremely impossible to moderate your drinking in that way. So to your point, I think moderation is possible. Um, I think there are also factors, and I talk about different factors in my book, depending on how long you've drank, um, trauma, your mental health issues, addiction in your family, things like that can make moderation more difficult or not. But I do think you need to kind of be real about 
you can't just mo- you can't be someone who's just like I just don't want the consequences of getting blacked out, but I still want to be on the party and you know get drunk once a week or once in a while. It's going to be like you got to have one or two drinks and be okay with not using alcohol to get drunk. Yes, that's another really important point, vital point, I think. So before we stop, and I want to ask you, the last question I want to ask you is more about you, but this one is about fiction hopping. And I see this all the time. Yes. So can you talk about that, that concept and what it is and what happens with addiction hopping? Yeah. So a lot of times, I mean, this is really common. Like you said, if someone stops drinking or stops using a different substance and if you don't work on what's going on under the surface, you're not actually kind of working through it. So in my book, I have an ice, like a picture of an iceberg. And I talk about how that surface level behavior, what we see on the outside is only about 15% of what's going on, right? What's under the alcohol use might be anxiety, trauma, um, you know, distorted thinking, um, you know, unstable mood, all of the lack of coping skills, all of these things. So if we don't work on, if we don't heal our anxiety or work through some of the things um, that are negatively impacting us or learn coping skills to be able to work through, you know, um, being triggered, it's really easy to just switch to a different issue and use that issue, whether it's, you know, a different substance, whether it's perfectionism, whether it's gambling, whether it's an unhealthy relationship, it just pops right in. addiction to AA itself? Yes. I have seen people really become uh, completely ruminative or just so obsessed about AA that it's everything becomes about alcohol. And it's an interesting thing to watch. Right, exactly. Like the whole point of right um, healing and mental wellness is being able to kind of be psychologically flexible and being able to take care of ourselves in the moment. So anytime we're like kind of moving, of course, in the beginning, you know, some rigidity, some rules can be helpful. But the goal is to be able to be flexible in our thinking. Um and yeah, people can become very rigid with the way. That, and it's it's shocking to me as someone who talks about different types of ways someone can heal. I mean, it's really crazy to see on, on social media, specifically, people will tell me that I'm being harmful and I'm causing people to die because I say that not everyone needs to be abstinent. And maybe there are other ways for people to recover. And I think that's a good example of just when someone feels like something is for them, they can sometimes lose sight of how it might not be helpful for other people. Oh, I see people who who say you're doing harm to, to even suggest that somebody could drink more moderately or whatever. Yeah, or even like not use a tw- traditional 12-step program. I see. Crazy. I see. So here comes the more personal question. Yeah. I mean, you're still young. Yeah. <laughs> but, but <laughs> how, how has your life changed? I mean, what... Mm. When you think about what would have, I guess you're 31, right? You said yep. seven years. So what would 31 have looked like mm. had you not stopped drinking, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's a really important, it was part of why I stopped drinking because I started to see what was happening in my life. And I was like, I don't want to go down that road. And I could see that things could get worse and I didn't want to wait for it to get 
get worse. So I really think that I don't think I would have been able to become a therapist. I mean, I think it's really hard to sit with people and and be authentic and and hear their stories if you feel like a fraud, which is what I felt like. Um, you know, I have my own practice now and I wrote this book, which obviously never would have happened if I was still out drinking. I mean, I don't know if I ever would have. I think it can be extreme when people say like, you will die if you don't stop drinking. I don't necessarily think that's where I was, but I don't think I would have this life. I don't think I would have the confidence that I have to do things. I mean, I think that's the, the best thing I can say about my sobriety is that it there's nothing like being able to rely on yourself and trust yourself to do what you say you'll do, to trust yourself, to take care of yourself. Um, I had so much shame. I thought I was a terrible person. And the word congruence in my mind, the word congruence mm. of my, as you, and you mentioned your, you do some values work with people that what I value on the inside is actually what's showing outwardly as well. My yeah. outward behavior, my outward choices are reflect my values. And I think when, when you drink, when you have any kind of addiction like that, then, but you really think, but I'm, I want to feel good. I, I don't want to lose myself. I want to feel like I'm in control. I want to feel competent. I want to feel fulfilled. And then your outward behavior is different. So I think there's a lack of congruence there often. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, sometimes I think there's been a lot of work done on the alcoholic personality, mm-hmm. someone who tends to blame, someone who tends to rarely take responsibility mm-hmm. for themselves. Do you do you believe in that? Um. I think what's interesting is I used to feel like when I was in my work, right. And I had become sober and I was working with people with addictions only. I used to feel very like there are people who are of the addictive personality and I understand them and they're totally different people. And the longer I'm sober and the more people I work with, I think we're all on the same continuum. I think that we can all fall into patterns of, having some obsessive or addictive behavior. I think we can all fall into patterns of denial and deflection. And um, so, yeah, so I think that's what's so interesting is I used to be like, I can only work with people with, you know, substance use disorders because I understand them. And the more that I, the longer I've been sober, the longer I'm a therapist, I really see like we all have so much in common under the surface. The way we handle things might be different, right? The the top of our iceberg, some people are more perfectionistic. Some people deal with stress by doing more. Some people deal with stress by under-functioning and doing less. But my whole belief too is that I think that given the right circumstances, given the the right life stress and difficulties, we all have the capability to to use alcohol in an unhealthy way. Sure, sure. So there's not a specific personality that tends to develop this, that it's a, unfortunately, it's something that we can all adopt as a strategy and then that'll bring out things and it'll bring out things in our personality that are, again, probably not akin to some of the deeper values we have. So, okay. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate it. Amanda's book is Not Drinking Tonight and uh, it's available probably everywhere you buy books. Is that right? 
It is. It is. Thank you so much for having me. And your Instagram is therapy for women and you have a huge following there. So congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, if anyone wants to pop over there and follow me there, I'd love to have you. Sure. Of course. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you all for being here, and I hope that you learned something from Amanda. I think for someone in her mid-30s, she's got a lot of wisdom under her belt. I want to thank all of you who've left a rating, a review in the last little bit. It is so appreciated when you take some time, even five minutes, to leave a rating or review, especially a written review, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to self-work. And I've written the book, Perfectly Hidden Depression. A really wonderful thing happened. I got an email from a woman last week from Italy who's a professor at the University of Florence there. And she wants me to do a presentation on perfectly hidden depression or depression that can be camouflaged by a perfect looking life and by lots of control. She wants me to speak to a national organization of Italian psychologists and psychiatrists. I could not be more honored Talking with her next week, I'll let you know how it goes. But Perfectly Hidden Depression is available to you in English. It has over 60 steps for you to take toward gaining more actual control over your life, which means becoming more comfortable with vulnerability and emotional pain and learning how to do it perhaps for the very first time. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com and you can leave a SpeakPipe voice message for me. I love getting those. And you can find that avenue through my website at drmargaretrutherford.com or right here in your show notes where it says, send a voice message to the Self Work Podcast. I also want to invite you to my Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self work. Again, thank you for being here. Please take very good care of yourself, your family, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.